Space Rocks podcast, uh, 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 sitting down with uh, uh, Mark McCorkran uh, across the ether. Mark, how are you doing in the uh, in the wake of Space Rocks One? Uh, feeling very well, actually. Uh, it's a lovely day here, bright and sunny, warming up slowly for the weekend. So uh, after the uh, rather grey period of rain, which reflected my mental come down from Space Rocks, um, yeah, it's all good. Looking sunny. Yeah, uh, Mark, I, I got to say, uh, I. I I suppose I don't want to spend too much time um, complimenting ourselves, um, but it, it, it feels like something really special happened. I mean, if I have one abiding memory from the entire day, it's a lot of really smiley people. You know, uh, it just felt like the vibe backstage, on stage, out in the crowd. Um, there was just a, a, a real celebratory mood, or, or, or was it just me? Oh, no, no, no. I don't think it was just you at all. I think... I think that the thing is that it proved the basic point, which was that you were getting people together that um, either, you know, they're, they're comfortable in their own area, they, they know people in their own business, um, they, they, you know, they, they, they're competent in, in whether it's playing on stage or talking about science, but bringing them together and seeing the connections between people who, you know, on one hand you had Tim Peake shaking hands with Brian May, both incredibly well-known uh, people in, in their own arenas, but suddenly they were the kids shaking hands with each other. And I think we saw that throughout the whole day that uh, both from those of us who were lucky enough to go on stage and talk and, and perform, but also from the audience, they saw a crossover that's just not normal um, and yet works. And that was the whole idea, right? Right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I completely agree with you. And certainly seeing Brian May and Tim Peake tweeting from their individual accounts, uh, Instagramming, and kind of fanboying out over each other was uh, pretty funny to see, you know. Uh, I, actually, uh, uh, people may not have realized that what was going on backstage was uh, something pretty unique uh, because uh, Tim pulled Brian aside and presented him with a mission patch, which you could kind of say is responsible for the genesis of this entire collaboration, a, a, a Principia Space Rocks patch, which uh, uh, Brian had, uh, uh, well, I think he, he was pretty bowled over uh, to, to put it mildly <laughs> right yeah well the fact you know as you as you know these these things tim carried a number of these up into space on his on his mission um and there's that weird thing and i think the astronauts have it themselves but for me at least you know anything that's actually been into space um whether it's a patch like that or a piece of space flight hardware or or a meteorite that's come from space and come down to the ground i think sort of making a physical contact with that also brings an emotional moment as well it's one thing to look up the stars but be, to be able to touch them somehow um it really brings people together yeah i uh, on a, a a show such as this uh, with its intentions I'm hesitant to use the word magical, uh, but there's definitely something very special about touching an object that's left our environment, that's occupied the cosmos, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I, I can definitely attest to that because I think that's the first time I actually touched something that had actually been there. I mean, besides the actual significance of it all, like you say, just a really special moment, you know. Uh, yeah. I've never seen anything quite like that well of course you know it's been an interesting couple of weeks not just because of space rocks but a lot has happened since then uh, can you tell us a bit about this gaia data release that happened uh, about 10 days ago 
Yeah, Gaia is one of the biggest missions we have in the European Space Agency, a space science mission. It was launched at the end of 2013. And ever since then, it's been sitting up about a million and a half kilometers away from the Earth, spinning slowly once every six hours, and just mapping the positions of the stars. So stars in our Milky Way, about a billion of them. That's about 1% of the total. And And it's just measuring the positions incredibly accurately. So over five years or so, it's able to nail down the positions of stars to the precision equivalent to the width of a human hair, 2,000 kilometers. So that's the precision that this machine can measure at. And you say, well, okay, so you've made a map. You know where all the stars are now. What's special about that? Well, what Gaia is also doing is measuring how the stars move. Uh, And they move for two fundamental reasons. One is they move, they kind of wobble backwards and forwards from a perspective um, um, angle, if you like, as the Earth goes around the sun and the satellite goes with it the nearby stars move against the more distant ones. Uh, It's it's a thing we call parallax, but uh, anybody can do it. You can put a thumb up in front of your face and close one eye and close the other, sort of winking between the two eyes, and you'll see your thumb moves against the background. And if the thumb is close to you, then you'll see a big movement of the thumb, and if the thumb is further away, you see a smaller movement. So that's actually how we measure distance to the stars. So what Gaia's data release last week did was took these billion stars and not only showed you where they are on the sky in two dimensions, but actually we now know the distance to all those stars. So that's remarkable in itself. But then the other thing is that stars are actually just moving through space. Um, As they rotate around the Milky Way galaxy, which we all live in, you see another motion there superimposed on this annual wobble. And this big Gaia data release last week uh, for 1.3 billion stars gave us the positions and the motions for all of those stars. And that's enormously exciting to the astronomical community because it's a map of the Milky Way, but a a, a movie as well. And it allows us in in some kind of way to run the movie backwards, not not run it forwards to see how the the Milky Way is going to turn out in billions of years time, but run it backwards and see how it was put together in the first place because the motions of the stars reflect where they came from in the first place. So that's a really exciting thing. And science communities digging in, writing lots of papers, uh, and these are all public data. So what happened last week was that the data were just put basically on the internet for anybody to download. doesn't have to be a scientist, could be anyone. Um, and uh, there's just so much data there that people are you know, drooling with the things that that's going to turn up and uh, it's a pretty, pretty amazing moment for everybody who's worked for nearly 20 years on the mission to get the data out there like that. I mean, how significant a leap forward is that data release? I've seen a lot of people talking about it as a game changer. I mean, it's something that's going to completely change the paradigm of understanding. Is, is that an accurate uh, uh, way of looking at things? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the people that uses that hashtag, game changer. Um, if we go back to the previous mission of this guy, this is a real European speciality, measuring the positions of stars and their movements very accurately. And we had a mission called Hipparchos roughly 20 years ago, which measured p- positions and motions of just 2 million stars. And here we are now, almost a 1,000 times more. And that reaches much further out. It, it, the, the Hipparchos was looking mostly at nearby stars, in, just in our very local neighborhood. And now Gaia allows us to stretch to the center of our Milky Way and actually beyond out to the nearest other small galaxies which are floating around us. Um, and one of the weird things, I think, I predict that probably in 
10 years or so, uh, people won't even refer to Gaia anymore. They'll just know that the data are there. It'll become such a part of the landscape. Every astronomy project in one way or another will end up using Gaia data. Because, you know, you'll look at a black hole, you look at a quasar, you look at exoplanets going around other stars. You want to know where those stars are, where those objects are in space. And uh, that then becomes a sort of an underpinning. Gaia becomes the basis for everything we'll do in astronomy in the future. I think it really is that fundamental. A genuine game changer there. Man. Uh, of course, that's not the only major development. I, I keep seeing more and more. Uh, about Pepe Colombo, and uh, you know, as the mission ramps up, this is, uh, I, I guess, uh, uh, ambitious is understating the case. Oh yeah, and yeah, Pepe Colombo is a, <clears throat> a real monster of a project in in, in many ways. It's uh, it's a huge spacecraft, uh, three spacecraft, all built uh, and, and combined together, uh, all to go to Mercury, uh, planet Mercury, the one, the smallest of the planets, closest to the sun, just about on the order of 40 million kilometers away from the sun, so a third of the distance that we are. Um, that's a real mysterious planet. We've been there a couple of times, um, but Bepi is really going to dig in much deeper into the science of how that little planet formed. Uh, did it form where it is today? How has it evolved in this location? It's incredibly hot. Uh, it's up to 450 degrees um, on the side facing the sun. It's a temperature of a pizza oven, so... And on the other side, you have the sun 10 times brighter than it is from where we sit here at the Earth. And we had to build a spacecraft which can survive those enormous temperatures. So it's a really complex piece of technology. Three spacecraft, as I said, um, a, a European orbiter, which will be orbiting planet Mercury and looking down at the surface and studying, taking images, but measuring uh, the chemical properties of the surface, measuring what's underneath the surface. Um, then on top of that, it's a small Japanese um, satellite, which is going to be spinning and measuring the magnetic fields of Mercury. Uh, Mercury is, in principle, too small to have a magnetic field. The, the solid core, the core in the center um, in a planet that small should have frozen by now, cooled down to make it solid iron. Uh, whereas the Earth is, is big enough that it has a liquid metal core generating a magnetic field. Um, Mercury is too small for that, and yet it has a magnetic field. So it's, it's um, you know, investigating that's a really important thing. How does that happen? And then um, behind all of it is a big propulsion module using um, effectively ion engines, solar electric propulsion, where we use energy from the sun, big solar arrays, charge up particles um, to vary and then accelerate them out the back of the spacecraft at very high speed. But the weird thing is with BEPI is that we're not actually... Uh, using it to speed the spacecraft up. We're using those those uh, engines to slow it down. The real problem getting to Mercury is is not, not just getting there, but going getting there slowly enough that you can stop and go into orbit. So uh, because Mercury is so close to the sun, you fall in towards the sun under gravity, and you use these engines and also flybys, gravity flybys of Earth, Venus, and Mercury itself over seven years uh, we're going to slow ourselves down so that we can actually go into orbit around Mercury. So it's very exciting, a uh, very complicated machine. Mark, uh, you're going to hate me for raising this, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, But uh, probably the closest analog I could think of in popular culture that actually deals with the problems of heat is a film called Sunshine uh, that came out mm. uh, probably about 10 years ago. And uh, it was interesting, I think, because the way it depicted not just the uh, the, the spacecraft itself, but also the problems 
of that kind of proximity um, wasn't something that I'd actually seen before. But uh, I, I imagine the reality is completely different. But but how does a machine get that close to the sun? Well, you know, firstly, you can you can get there because gravity will take you there. Um, but indeed, it's exactly that problem. How do you deal with temperatures of 450 degrees on the outside of the spacecraft, but make sure that the inside, your electronics are running at you know, 50 degrees centigrade, for example, at the most. I mean, people will know their, their PCs, their laptops will get hot. Um, but if they get to 450 degrees, they just melt. So that's not a good thing at all. So on, on one hand, what we have on the outside of the spacecraft is sort of a bit like um, a, a fireman's suit, Nomex, if you like, um, sewn together, padding, silver, metal, metallic material, um, sewn into these padded, um, like a big puffer jacket on the outside of the spacecraft. But there's a thing that you have to be careful in space. You know, on the Earth, we cool down, humans or most many things cool down through uh, convection and conduction. Uh, and convection only works where you have an atmosphere. In space, that doesn't work. There's, there's no gas around. It's empty. So the only way we can really cool a spacecraft is by radiation, by beaming heat away from the spacecraft. And that's the problem with BEPI, is that if you beam in the direction of Mercury, you just get more heat back than you want. If you beam it in the direction of the Sun, you get more heat back than you want. So you have to beam out the heat from the spacecraft into a very narrow range of angles where all you can see is the black, blackness of space. And we have these very strange radiators, uh, effectively mirrored on one side and black on the other side, to beam, beam this uh, radiation out into space. And here's the thing, uh, we're going to, the, the real spacecraft, Bepi Colombo, all three components, have all gone off to Kourou. They've all flown out of uh, Schiphol Airport near us here, near, in, in um, Amsterdam's airport. They've all flown off in big Antonov aircraft out to our launch site in Kourou, uh, in French Guiana. So that gets launched in October. But in order to uh, check that it, all the technologies were going to work with uh, Bepi Colombo, a spacecraft can survive it. 450 degrees on one side but minus 200 on the other side where it faces the coldness of space we had to build what's called a structural thermal model an engineering model and the lovely thing is that that engineering model is going on display at the science museum in london in just a couple of weeks time so we've we've loaned it to the science museum it's huge it's six meters tall um, it's going to be standing up there uh, for everybody to see um, starting after the 16th of May. So this is going to be really something for everybody to go and have a look at and uh, try to understand how the technology was put together. Yeah, what a, what, a, what a tremendous feat. You know, I guess it's not just about survivability for humans, but uh, machines as well, certainly. And, and there's just so much that's happened. Uh, it, uh, I saw uh, at the uh, Berlin Air Show, I believe, uh, uh, the signing of a joint document between ESA and NASA to do a Martian return sample mission uh, uh, to actually bring Martian soil back to Earth. Uh, is, is that a fair summation of what happened? Uh, yeah. I, I was yeah. Yeah, kind of uh, staggered uh, by the ambition of that. You know, I mean, not just landing a thing on Mars, but actually getting it to, uh, to take off with a, with a bit of that terrain. Yeah. Well, it's, some, it's a dream, and it's something that people have been working to, uh, towards for a long time. So we have um, a mission that just went, it went into orbit in October 2016, and it's just started its science operations called the Trace Gas Orbiter. Uh, this is a joint program between European Space Agency and Russia, and it's measuring gases in the atmosphere, looking for possible traces of life or, or signals that life is still on the surface of Mars or underground and generating 
trace gases like methane. So that's there now. And in a couple of years' time, we fly a lander and a rover to drive around on the surface. NASA will be doing the same again. Uh, it, it, its Curiosity rover has been on the surface since the 2012, and it's going to fly another one. And they all carry instruments which can measure stuff in situ right on the surface of, of Mars. But, you know, you can't build too big a laboratory if you've got to fly it all the way to Mars and put it on the surface. Many of the machines you would want to use to analyze samples to look at the, the history of the geology of Mars, the, the possibility of life in great detail. Some of those machines are actually kilometers across almost, huge accelerators uh, where you put a sample at the focus of a beam of uh, electrons or protons. Um, and to do to analyze the samples properly, then you need to bring samples back to Earth. So that's what we did. We signed an agreement with NASA uh, to look at the ways we could build um, an architecture, a, a series of missions which will go to the surface of Mars, pick up samples, stick them in a cache, maybe wait then a couple of years, go and send another spacecraft to pick up those samples, load them into a small rocket, fire it back into orbit around Mars, Another spacecraft there will catch a hold of the samples and bring them all the way back to Earth and into the Earth's atmosphere and fly down to the surface. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a huge step for the Mars community, and it's something we're really looking forward to seeing the outcome from. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And uh, obviously with uh, ExoMars uh, inserting itself into uh, uh, an orbit that allowed us to take a picture of the, I think, was it, one of the poles of Mars, actually <laughs> yeah. seeing that frozen terrain is just so absolutely interesting. Just the detail on it was uh, was pretty breathtaking. Well, the lovely thing about that image is it's the first uh, from the trace gas orbiter in that science orbit, 400 kilometers up. And in the, it, it's a lovely color image, but the, the thing that we'll, you'll be seeing a lot of is that we take pictures as we fly um, across the surface of Mars. We kind of look forward and scan the surface and then after a, a you know few minutes turn around or turn the camera around and look back the way we've been coming and that allows us to look with two perspectives if you like and make stereo images so we'll have stereo imaging of much of the surface of mars from that mission and in color as well so those data are starting to come in now um, and they'll, they'll be available to the public um, when the scientists have had a chance to look through them and make sure they're all calibrated so yeah i think it's a, an exciting time for mars Indeed, you know, an, an exciting time for uh, spacecraft as well. Certainly, I mean, uh, uh, the, the the final thing that I wanted to raise was a very interesting picture that uh, Tim Peake actually tweeted a few days ago of the Orion capsule. Uh, you know, just I guess one of the new, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, vehicles. Um, you know, for taking astronauts into space. I mean, it. it uh, a few comments have surfaced. Uh, it looks pretty cramped in there. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um Indeed it is. It's uh, up to four people on the inside, and it looks a bit like a scaled-up version of the famous Apollo capsules, um, which, which it is. Of course, it's much more modern technology on the interior, but, you know, space is space, and so there won't be that much room inside for these uh, four astronauts. The difficulty being, of course, that they won't just be going to the moon and back. Um, they may be going for missions for up, for up to a month. Um, so there's, it's going to be difficult for, you know, people to uh, get on with each other in such a small enclosed space there's also the issue which is uh, um, <clears throat> you know just one of those things as most people will remember back in Apollo program that the capsules um, splash landed in the Pacific Ocean and then were picked up and brought to aircraft carriers that's going to be used again for Orion and um, unfortunately the Orion capsule so big it can't be actually lifted by helicopter and put onto the deck um, so you're going to have to wait until 
people get actually the big ships get close to where the capsules landed and this capsule is not at all a boat um, it's going to be wallowing around like crazy in the Pacific Ocean um, and I think you're going to have lots of very seasick astronauts um, for, for a while until they can get picked up but uh, yeah so it'll be an interesting moment when they open the capsule and let the astronauts out um, but but you know Tim said it uh, would he go and do this of course he's just one of many who are in a queue to get on this new vehicle you have to remember that the crew part uh, is being built by NASA and the European Space Agency is building what we call the service module, the whole back end with the propulsion system, the power system, the water, the oxygen and so on. Um, that's based on a spacecraft we flew to the space station five times, the automated transfer vehicle. Um, and that's our contribution to the Orion program, building the service vehicle. So um, service module, That's we've built one and there's another one just started construction now um up in bremen and uh yeah so it's uh still a few years before the first launch of that on the uh, space launch system huge big new nasa rocket um but uh yeah take us beyond low earth orbit uh, for the first time uh, since 1972 that's a pretty big step forward certainly and I, I suppose it highlights one of the biggest chasms between science and science fiction certainly is in order to tell a good story you can't really deal with the details like how hard it is to land the things, <laughs> how hard it is to <laughs> supply the mission, and so on. I, I just finished watching Lost in Space on Netflix. Uh, mm. uh, uh, quite a uh, astonishing uh, reimagining, you could say, just as uh, ambitious as uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica of a classic series. And I, I suppose the ideas are all there, but I think one of the most interesting ones is something that was touched on briefly in the science fiction versus fact panel is the robot itself, you know, the uh, the looming question of whether we need to send astronauts into space or perhaps whether machine intelligence is the next step, whether sending learning, I don't want to say thinking machines necessarily, mm. whether that's the next step for exploration, whether the problems of getting humans into that environment could be circumvented if we could actually just send a robot up there to do the same thing. And uh, I suppose it's a question mark. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Well, you know, we've, if you like, our robots uh, that we fly into space already, missions like Rosetta, uh, Venus Express, Mars Express, that, that you would call them robots in some sense. Now, are they clever robots? Do they learn? Do they adapt? No. I mean, they're really uh, computer systems which uh, follow a set of instructions. But for the ExoMars 2020 mission, one of the key things we want to do um, with the rover on the surface is actually allow it to drive itself around autonomously. So to be able to look at the landscape, to take pictures, to process them on board and then work out, OK, I've been told I need to get to this place 200 meters away. The rover can then try to figure out its, its best route for doing that um, rather than having to wait constantly for instructions from Earth um, with the, the delays that that takes given the light travel time. But also just, you know, people have to have <laughs> they have to sleep at some point. So if the rover can drive itself around on the surface autonomously, then that makes it much more capable. It can go much further. Now, again, is that that's not artificial intelligence. It's not saying, uh, actually, I would rather go to a completely different crater. I'd rather now build a, an art exhibit. I'd rather now, you know, open up a falafel stand. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's still doing what it's being told from, from the ground. Um, but there are environments in which, I, you know, humans will have no way of, of working, of, of surviving, in which robots you know, just take it in their stride and... Um, 
Bepi Colombo, we talked about that. You know, which human is going to sit there at temperatures of up to 450 degrees um, or go down to the surface of Venus where you're at um, you're sort of 100, 100 atmospheres of pressure? Um, incredibly difficult to send humans there. Is it worth even trying to when we can send down very capable robots? And the same goes for interstellar travel. If you wanted to go light years away on journeys of thousands of years, is that really something humans are capable of doing? Maybe, but the robots can certainly start uh, and, and, and move out there uh, in advance of us. Yeah, it, it all begins to sound a bit like science fiction, perhaps because that's where a lot of that literature dwells. That's where a lot of those movies do. You know, not the things that we're capable of, but the things we imagine we may someday be able to. And I suppose what's fascinating and really exciting now is it seems that the gulf is closing. Uh, uh, we were joined by uh, Dallas Campbell, of course, as the host of Space Rocks. And uh, uh, he, he spent a few minutes uh, after uh, hosting session one to talk about the relationship between science and human culture and just the centrality of science fiction and just how important it's been to not just inspire science, but also get people interested in what's really out there. And I suppose that's what we're trying to achieve. Here's what he had to say. The one message that I want to take away from Space Rocks is that science is part of human culture, and that includes everything. Any space scientist, as soon as you get them on the subject of science fiction, they will start to talk, because most scientists at some point will have been inspired by the films they've seen, or the books they've read, or the music they've listened to, or whatever, or whatever it is. So, you know, when we think about space science particularly, we, we have a huge debt to the work of science fiction's authors, particularly, you know, you know, 2001, that film particularly with people of this generation, that was the film that's, that very often sparked their interest. I, I missed the sort of first Apollo 11 landing, but I was around in the early 70s, so for me, landing on the moon was something that people did. That was, that was the kind of normal state of things. So I grew up with that, that still, that sort of post-Apollo feeling of optimism about exploring the universe. This is what we were going to do. And certainly in my lifetime, you know, I, I, I assumed we'd be on Mars by now. But then also I grew up watching programs like Cosmos I watched, uh, the, you know, The Ascent of Man, Tomorrow's World, all those uh, programs that were on television in the, in the sort of 70s and 80s were my, that was my world. I was absolutely obsessed by all that. My favourite space, well, yes, there is. It's called Frau Imond. Uh, it's by Fritz Lang, and it was made in the 1930s. And that film was such an important film in the history of rocket science, particularly because it was a German film and the scientific advisors on it, uh, Hermann Obert, the, the famous German rocket scientist, and Werner von Braun, of course, who went on to make the V2. But the scientific advisors were the, the people who went on to invent the rockets. And it's an, it's an amazing film. It's an amazing film scientifically for those reasons, but it's an amazing film politically and culturally. It's the one film that if you want to understand the history of human spaceflight. Go all the way back and watch Frau Imond, Woman in the Moon, by Fritz Lang. Really interesting thoughts from Dallas Campbell. Mark, I mean, he mentions Frau Imond as one of the most influential films for him, but also perhaps one of the most visionary as well, not just because what it depicted, but also because they actually had space scientists, engineers, rocket scientists informing the ways that things were depicted. You know, if you look back historically at people who've uh, done amazing things in, in space science, many of them will have been inspired by those very early uh, films, books, um, 
TV programs even for some of us as well. I mean, for me, Doctor Who was enormously influential as a, as a kid. Uh, Doctor Who sort of dispensed with any sense of reality when it came to the uh, the way that space travel worked, but it was actually much more about the the skills or the the drive to inquire. You know, how do we get ourselves out of this problem? What's the situation here? What what's behind what's visible on the surface? Uh, of course, there was lots of running around and uh, um, playing with crazy aliens uh, to make it exciting. But it was that sense of inquiry in science fiction, taking yourself into environments where, you know, science fiction allows you to pose problems in a way which are outside of the ordinary, but then nevertheless loop back to very fundamental issues about how humans deal with situations. Um, so I think many of us as scientists were inspired by science fiction. I continue to read it. I continue to watch it. Um, so, you know, and to keep those two sides of your life separate, I think that's impossible. Know, so it's quite often that you'll see uh, <clears throat> things happening here at the European Space Agency. We have a bit of science fiction tinge to it. Flip side is, of course, we have to make it real. So there's a point at which we all have to look at each other and say, all right, well, that was fun. Now let's get on with cutting a piece of metal that's really going to go and do this stuff. But but it's always there. I think it's in the background uh, quite a lot. And that the way that people can... Uh, integrate those sort of cultural aspects uh, into the sociological aspects, into the real the real way that we do them. It is, again, something that we're trying to achieve with Space Rocks, and uh, it was very good of Dallas to come along and, and, and sort of pull that together for us as, as the moderator. Indeed. He, he was a really great person to meet, and we'll certainly hope to have him back soon. Speaking of which, uh, uh, Tim Peake was there as well. Uh, kind of hard to overlook his presence, and I have to say, uh, what... A lovely man, uh, you know, uh, for someone who uh, uh, I guess uh, represents so much uh, interest, uh, a person who has lived an adventure, um, also a really lovely presence in the room. This is what happened. My name's Tim Peake. I'm an astronaut with the European Space Agency, and today is the first Space Rocks here in London at the O2. So uh, we are engaging with the public today and trying to get the message out about space, about art and culture and music. Uh, and to get people inspired about space. It's, it's been brilliant. I mean, the, the, the reaction from the audience has been wonderful. The questions have been great. I've learned an awful lot. I mean, the panel has been really diverse. You know, uh, we've had people involved in science fiction in terms of producing uh, films, in terms of writing books. Brian May has been here, one of my own heroes, so it's been great. I've really loved it. When you get people in, in both industries talking together, you realise how much synergy there is between the two and the fact that, yeah, a lot of science fiction does feed into actually what becomes reality. Uh, and of course then there are other concepts and theories that, that may never make it and may take a lot longer, but it's always fascinating to hear. It's interesting because you're not not quite sure which angle people are going to be coming from. Do they want to know more about the serious side? Are they more interested in, in the culture and the music? But that's the great thing I think about space is it brings together people uh, of a variety of different interests. Um, it was something that I tried to do with, the, with my mission, Principia. Um, and we sat down, we thought, well, we, we know that we're going to get people in, interested in science and technology and engineering and maths. That's a given, that, those kind of people. What about the people who are interested in art and drama and music and history? Uh, how do we try and get those people involved in the mission? And it turned out to be quite easy. I think you know, many people are naturally drawn to space as a source of ins inspiration. I mean, there's, there's lots of people who have been inspired 
occupy space. I've been, uh, I've had, you know, quite a few artists who've shown me their their paintings, having been inspired not just by human space exploration, but robotic space exploration pictures. We've had some fantastic pictures back of Jupiter recently, and of Saturn, of course, from Cassini. Um, and, and these are very inspirational images that are coming back, and that, that that's a source of inspiration for, for artists and musicians as well. So uh, it's great to meet some of these people who share a common passion. We, we had about three or four songs we each chose before launch because um, uh, it, we, we have a buffer there of about an hour and 20 minutes in case there's a problem with any of the pre-launch checks. But if everything goes to plan, then we're sat with literally nothing to do except review the checklist for an hour and 20 minutes. So it's not a good time to be you know, contemplating uh, the great questions of life when you're sat in 300 tons of explosive fuel. So they play some, they play some music into the, into the capsule. Uh, and uh, so I had Queen, Don't Stop Me Now. So it was oh, great yeah. to be uh, oh, yeah. speaking with Brian. Yeah. Uh, obviously Brian May is a huge uh, fan, uh, hero of mine. Yeah. And uh, I had Coldplay, um, Sky Full of Stars, and U2, Beautiful Day. Yeah. So they were playing just before launch. And then the Russians, uh, literally in the seconds just prior to launch, played Europe's final countdown, just as a, as a bit of fun there. So that was, that, was, that was the music that we went off into space with. People were saying to me, well, what music do you like? And I, I, I said, well, I've got a really eclectic you know, taste in music of all sorts. And, uh, and I thought, well, why not use, rather than just telling people my taste in music, why not use, build a, a, a playlist and turn it into a competition? So um, I, I spoke to uh, some, uh, some colleagues at the European Space Agency and said, hey, this would be a, something I'd like to do. And, and they were very supportive. And then um, Carl said, well, actually, let's take it one step further. Let's actually contact those musicians and see if they'd be happy, you know, retweeting it, supporting it, sending a message and posting the video. So it really grew from there. Uh, it really engaged the public and, and of course the competition they had to guess the lyrics uh, oh, so I, I would provide the lyrics they had to guess the artist and the song and win a, a Space Rocks patch uh, yeah, a Space Rocks patch <laughs> so uh, everyone likes music and uh, on board the space station when I got on board Scott Kelly was the commander he'd been up there for eight months he had a very relaxed uh, manner he was a fantastic commander and he liked music playing so we'd often you could float into modules during the day there'd just be music playing and obviously when we're working out uh, we, we always have music on when we're working out so so actually there's a lot of music on board the space station and, and it is nice it, it connects you with home uh, and it's uh, you know it's one of those things that make it a less sterile environment a less hostile environment uh, and it is it, basically uh, we do use it a crutch it's a, a comfort to have music up there with us I mean you're floating around to music all day long it's brilliant it really is yeah yeah it's great Oh, I used to love watching the shuttle launches. I was growing up in, in the 80s, uh, 70s, 80s, and so shuttle missions were really the things that were inspiring me on the television. I remember Bruce McCandless um, doing his untethered spacewalk. Uh, and also, you know, that was kind of, you know, James Bond Moonraker stuff, where science fiction becomes reality. We spoke about that. Well, watching Bruce McCandless, you know, coming out the back of a shuttle payload on a, on a jetpack, untethered, and going off into space, that was, you know, a huge moment. I think everybody is scared at some point. It's only natural. I mean, fear is a very natural response, uh, and it's it's good for us. It makes us think about what we're doing. Um, we tend to get around that by training and training and training and, and knowledge helping to overcome fear. Uh, but certainly before a spacewalk, there's apprehension. It's, if it's your first time, you've never been out there, you don't know how you're going to react, you don't know the environment you're going into. Um, but the training really takes over, and I've, I've found that throughout my career, whether it's been as an astronaut or, or as a test pilot, um, you know, then, then training is the thing that reduces fear. 
this this was during the mission. It was uh, about two months into into my mission, and we myself and Tim Copra had to go and repair a solar panel right at the furthest edge of the space station. Uh, that was our primary task, and we had a number of tasks after that. Um, and of course, spacewalks take a lot of preparation, and um, you have to plan your route meticulously. One of the things that astronauts have to be very careful about, of course, is not falling off the space station. Um, you're then into a very, very difficult situation. And it's like being a rock climber. You have a long way to go. You have to be extremely careful about the route you're using. Um, and so that took meticulous planning and execution. And the level of concentration that you need to maintain for six hours is extremely physically tiring, but mentally it's, it's even more tiring because you cannot afford to make a mistake. Ours was cut short because Tim Copra's helmet started filling with water. He had a problem, uh, obviously a very dangerous situation, so we had to come back in, um, in about f after about five hours. But normally we would plan spacewalks between six and eight hours. There's an incredibly exciting future ahead. Uh, we really are on the, in the dawn of a new era of space exploration. Uh, International Space Station's in its absolute prime right now in terms of research. Uh, it's got another life expectancy out to about 2024, but in that same time frame, we're looking at going back to the moon. We are today building the spacecraft to take us back to the moon. We're building the deep space habitat that's going to be in orbit around the moon, and we're looking to going to Mars in the 2030s. So a dawn of a, a new era of space exploration. It's very exciting times. And that, of course, was astronaut Tim Peake, uh, inspiring person, a delight to have him down to Space Rocks. Mark, he talks about uh, the unifying concept of Space Rocks, uh, the idea of bringing everything together, almost scooping it together under one roof and just saying this is all part of a spectrum of human curiosity. Uh, uh, one of the, the favorite moments of the day, I think, was, of course, the interaction that he had with the audience, especially the young kids, because, of course, that's where you can really spark a lifetime of interest. I think we can all relate to that sensation, certainly. I mean, when you think about Space Rocks, it must be pretty emotional, because, of course, it's not just the event that we had in London. It's the genesis of it all, the Space Rocks campaign. You know, it's uh, we've, we've been talking about this for such a long time, you and I, and, uh, you know, there were times, I think, when we weren't quite clear on on how to make it happen and exactly what we wanted, uh, how we would make a day work. But I think underneath that, right from the beginning, we, we, we shared this idea that by bringing people together from different cultural, technical, scientific areas, uh, that you could make something more than just, you know, the sum of the parts. Uh, and, I, and I felt that very strongly on the day, you know, I mean, there was the theory and there we were putting into practice and just to see people, of course, the audience changed during the day. We had younger audience perhaps at the beginning where Tim and uh, Matt, Maggie and Beth were speaking um, with the, probably a little bit more adult during the, uh, the afternoon or the, the second session on science fiction, but we still had some kids there and then probably a more adult audience for the music. But but there was an overlap, and I think that um, the fact that the, you had some of the same people on stage throughout the various sessions, it wasn't just discrete events. Um, I think that, that that sense of bringing people together is that we've, something we've seen here at ESA uh, over the last few years. If you can just bring people into the room who, th who nominally have rather different interests, if you can find that little piece of the Venn diagram where they overlap, then new and very exciting things can happen. So we've been working with artists, with musicians, with poets. Um, and, you know, sometimes, and I think it happened at Space Rocks almost inevitably, there were just times when, you know, we couldn't be there anymore 
they were just talking to each other and from completely opposite sides of the Venn diagram, if you like. They had their little common area in the middle. And then they can run off and go and do new, exciting things completely independent of us. And so if we can be a spark for that, uh, both with, with our participants but with the audience. We already had one uh, uh, feedback, for example. I gave this talk in the middle of the afternoon about the scale of the universe and, and how to sort of construct a scale model to give yourself a bit more of a feel for how big the solar system is, how big the universe is. Some lovely tweets came back with a teacher had taken it into a school and you had two kids standing four meters apart. One, the, one is the moon, one's the earth. Um, and uh, so immediately a little spark there, um, just simple thing, but, but that I hope will, will go on. And that's the audience in the end. I really want this to be about the core audience uh, are the young people. Um, and, and not because I necessarily think they should all come and work in the space business. That would be fun. But uh, hopefully they'll see that, that it's, it's absolutely fine to be a nerd, be a scientist, and like music, or be a musician and like science and like culture, other, other sorts, outside of the silos. We're all too siloed today, I think. We're all kind of getting a little bit narrow sometimes, and, and broadening it back out again, allowing people to have that, that, that cross-culture is really, really important. Oh, it is. It is. And uh, I, I think really uh, uh, to, to, to call it a celebration um, I think is the best possible description for Space Rocks because it really felt like that, you know. Um, it felt like everybody was uh, included and, uh, well, you never know what ripple effects you may have been, uh, you know, partly responsible for because you never know who might have just walked out of that room. I suppose we'll find out maybe in 20 or 30 years. I mean, speaking of silos, of course, uh, it's an interesting segue. Uh, our uh, magnificent producer, Philip Wilding, will be listening in and no doubt grinning because he actually spoke to someone who lived in something of a silo for uh, 14 months. Uh, uh, Beth Healy came to our first session on Space Rocks uh, Space Academy to talk about the Concordia mission and uh, what it was like to endure the effects of isolation on the white Mars down at Concordia Station which is one of our spaceflight analog um, platforms. I was down in Antarctica for 14 months and the isolation phase was for nine of those months, so during the overwinter period. So it's when the, the crew is sort of isolated from um, both evacuation um, and, and other people I suppose. So um, during the overwinter it's temperatures like minus 80 and we also have um, three months where we don't have any sunlight at all um, and during that period it means that we can't get evacuated um, and that's that's why it's an isolation phase. So it's one of the most remote places on, on the earth. When you go down to a place like Concordia, as far as you, you're aware as the crew, if you do run into trouble then we do need to sort it out as a crew ourselves. So, um, And as a result of that we have two doctors who are down there um, to overcome some of the medical problems. We have lots of um, safety net in terms of um, other bases that we can sort of move to like a summer base. But yeah, you really are sort of on your own and that's the, the big psychological challenge um, that the crew faces and it really is helping to inform us about long duration spaceflight missions. I think for me that's part of the, the pleasure, the sort of interesting thing about working in these environments is sort of seeing how sort of humans react to, to those kind of conditions. And yeah, absolutely, you're very right. There was somebody um, that hid chocolate in the, in the roof. And um, it's really just, I mean, I do, they didn't do it maliciously, but it's all about sort of control. So, um, you know, when we're down there, we were never going to run out of food, but we had lots of nice things like sort of lint chocolate and, and the sort of treats really. And, uh, and this particular person was, yeah, 
hiding them in the roof, but giving them out sort of every week to make sure that we, you know, sort of rationing them amongst the crew to make sure someone didn't just eat them all in one night. But it's sort of interesting things like that that you see that you, you wouldn't necessarily expect to. People do run into trouble, certainly. I, I guess the thing that I was worried about before I went down was I was like, oh, everyone's going to be having like huge arguments. But it's actually much more subtle than that. So yeah, I guess for me, one of the experiences was um, somebody was like hiding all my things. So it's, it's much more sort of like psychological <laughs> um, battles with people rather than um, sort of, because nobody wants to be seen as the, the mean one that's shouting at the rest of the crew. So it's sort of, um, sort of undercurrents of things which, which go on, which is uh, fascinating psychologically. And that, of course, was Beth Healy. Uh, uh, Mark, I, I detect from her Twitter feed uh, something of an adventurer, Beth. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't seem to stand still, although she did for quite some time in Antarctica. Yeah, she, she's a medic. She's a doctor, um, but has done quite a lot of stuff in extreme environments. So she's been to the North Pole um, on an expedition there as the doctor. She, of course, as we've just heard, she spent 14 months in Concordia. Uh, in the middle of Antarctica, an incredibly isolated place. You can't get in there when 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 the uh, when it's the middle of winter. The planes can't land. Um, but she actually lives in Chamonix and uh, does a lot of uh, work there with uh, the people in the ski resort, but the mountaineering as well. So yeah, I, you know, I'm a bit jealous to be honest. Uh, she gets to live in uh, Chamonix all winter long. Flies back to the UK. She's a doctor there in Chamonix, and then comes back to the UK and does some. Uh, some doctoring there in in London um yeah yeah so uh you know if I was 30 years younger uh there's a there's a good template for a, a nice way to lead a life but uh underneath it all of course is that issue of being a scientist as well and doing the research into uh, how people operate in isolation how they operate under extreme conditions and bringing that back for us into how we can then uh, work with people going on very long journeys to Mars, for example. Uh, they might be two to three years away from home and understanding how people respond psychologically in that sense of isolation. Uh, Beth talks a lot about the fact, for example, that when, when the sun goes down, uh, you feel uh, even more of an isolation after you know two or three months with no daylight. And when people move away from uh, the Earth on the way to Mars, that moment where the, the, the Earth shrinks to just being effectively a point and you're so completely cut off from the Earth. Um, astronauts have never experienced that before. How will that be halfway between the Earth and Mars? How will people adapt to that sense of isolation? We can talk about it, but it's really, really hard to actually uh, put that into practice before we're on that journey. So the more we can learn about how humans respond in those situations, the better. What I find so fascinating about that all is, of course, because it addresses the thing that's so frequently overlooked, which is the effect of space and isolation on human psychology because of course you're always thinking about do you have enough air do you have enough food enough water all of these things to sustain life but what does it actually do to beings that have evolved to be social um, you know and you're in a way putting them in the most alien environment possible which is one where you are cut off from all of that contact which which made an absolutely fascinating fascinating presentation certainly which of course uh you know uh, happened just after uh, maggie lou talking uh, about dark matter and uh, in, in in some sense mark how much we don't know <laughs> about the universe even at this stage despite guy despite all the research and so on we still have this looming mystery yeah people might be tempted to think that scientists are involved in uh some kind of um 
long-term plan to keep themselves in work. You know, <laughs> uh, back at the turn of the 20th century, there were um, physicists who did say effectively science was over. We pretty much understood everything uh, at that point. Now, that's always, you know, it's always a dangerous thing to say. And shortly afterwards, both relativity and quantum mechanics came along uh, and completely overturned um, the basis of the universe that we live in. Um, and, you know, even to this day, quantum mechanics and relativity actually don't make a lot of sense to us humans. They work, they're correct. Uh, you can make predictions from, from both the, the sort of systems of equations that, that run both those areas of science. So they definitely are real. But how on earth do we, as, as sort of sli slightly evolved primates, come to terms with, with the idea of, of particles existing or not existing? Um, and here we are again, a um, hundred years later, where we've discovered that roughly 95% of the universe, of the, the sort of matter and the energy balance of the universe, is made of stuff that we have almost no idea about, dark matter and dark energy. So dark matter, on one hand, of course, is the stuff which we can't see, but it, it gives us a gravitational effect so we can measure its influence. We can tell that it's there, even if we can't see it. Um, and then dark energy is something entirely different. People tend to sort of conflate the two because they both use the word dark, but they're, they're, they're very likely completely unrelated phenomena. Um, and dark energy is causing the universe to expand even more rapidly. Uh, it's accelerating in, in its expansion rate. So something is weird there about how the universe is growing and, and dark energy is that thing. So the Euclid mission Maggie's working on um, European Space Agency mission is designed to look exactly at those phenomena, the effects of those phenomena, and then try to give us a clue as to how they actually, uh, what they must be, what, what, what the physical phenomenology is. Indeed. Well, this is what Maggie had to say about it all, and uh, I have to say, it blew my mind. I'm a research fellow at the European Space Astronomy Centre in Madrid. I work on gravitational lensing of galaxy clusters, and this is like an effect of gravity due to like the huge amount of dark matter in galaxy clusters. At uni, I did a course on cosmology. The standard model, there's maybe like six or seven parameters that describe the entire universe, how it started, how it will end. Will it like keep expanding forever or will it crunch back into the Big Bang again? Or will it just stop and freeze up, the big freeze? No one knows unless you can figure out these parameters. I wanna know. We have so many experiments on Earth going for many, many years trying to detect um, dark matter particles. Like I said, there's um, dark matter particles coming through us all the time. There should be like loads of particles passing through us, but we can't detect it. It doesn't emit any light. It doesn't interact with anything. We're still quite far away from that. We can see how uh, the gravity of dark matter bends light of distant galaxies. So we can figure out where it is and uh, how, how much there is, how much mass is in, in dark matter. I just remember camping one time okay. with my family and just like looking out in the star, into the sky and the stars all out there yeah. and realizing, oh wow, those stars are like our sun. There's so many of them. There must be so many planets out there. Yeah. There must be life out there. Like I just want to explore the whole universe. Like wow. we're, we're like a speck. We're like so insignificant. There's so much more to explore.
And that, of course, was Dr. Maggie Luke talking about dark matter and also how she got into her area of research. Mark, uh, one of the recurring themes of everybody that we had there at Space Rocks was that whether they were a musician, an artist, or indeed a scientist, they all could identify the moment that they looked up and wondered what was out there. What, what was that moment for you? What was that spark that propelled what you got into? Wow. You know, the, the exact moment, that's a really hard one. Of course, I, I was born in 1961. So uh, by the time 1969 came along and uh, first human being set foot on, on the moon, it's nearly, you know, remember next year is the 50th anniversary of Armstrong and Aldrin's first footsteps on the moon. I, it was definitely that. It then became a little bit more, I think, uh, m- more consciously. It was the Skylab um, Many people remember that uh, an upper stage tank was hollowed out. Uh, one of the Apollo um, propulsion tanks was used as a, the first space station. Uh, and here we are today, of course, with the International Space Station, a hugely more capable machine. But that was when I was about 10, uh, 12, 13 years old. And I used to you know, cut pictures out of magazines and stick them on, uh, on my, my school books. At the same time, I lived in the middle of the countryside where we had dark skies and I had a little telescope and was able to look up. I, I clearly I wanted to be an astronaut and uh, I was lucky enough to learn to fly when I was 17 and you know things were moving in that direction but as a Brit at that point it was not easy um, and I realized probably somewhere along the line that it was probably more interested as being a scientist than an astronaut so in fact you know astronauts that sounds cheeky but astronauts have only gone to the moon whereas I with what I've been working on I've gone out way beyond that to the Orion Nebula and beyond uh, through telescopes so, I, you know, I think it was a time uh, with the Apollo program and what came after it um, where, you know, there was a huge um, sense of endeavor, a huge sense of ambition about where we, where we could go based on these technologies and based on, on uh, the experience we were learning from early spaceflight. So that's been with me there for a long time. And uh, what, what, lucky enough. I'm now working in a space agency and able to see a lot of these dreams come true. Indeed. Well, it's uh, it's a remarkable time that we live in, certainly. And uh, it wasn't lost on, uh, well, our, our, our final uh, Space Rocks London interview of the day. Uh, uh, Jeff Notkin, the meteorite man, uh, freshly returned from Sahara, uh, had a lot to say about what generated his initial interest. Here's what he had to say. When I was a kid, my favorite thing in all of London was the Geological Museum, which is now part of the great Natural History Museum London. And I would implore my mother to let me go to the museum instead of going to school. And that was my favorite day trip, was to take the train up to Victoria, go to the Geological Museum, and that's where I first saw meteorites. And at the back of the mineral hall was a a marvelous, dark, kind of spooky room, the Hall of Meteorites. And that's where I saw them for the first time, and I, I was completely smitten and entranced as a kid by this this very clear understanding that they were from outer space and I was already a sci-fi fan I was watching Lost in Space and Star Trek and Doctor Who so to see rocks the physical manifestation of other bodies in the universe that a little boy could touch blew my mind I I was smitten and I, I I promised myself as a kid that one day I I I had to have. It. I, want, I promised myself I would own one in, in my collection one day, not realizing that that this uh, fairly grandiose wish would would set me down a very unusual career path. I gave myself a goal. So this was in the late 60s. I was a little boy, and I, my interest in meteorites 
was sustained and I saw collections all over the world and I read scientific papers, but I still didn't have one. And there wasn't really a collecting community then. It was in the early 90s and I went on an expedition to Arizona and I, I gave myself a, a rather strict goal, which is you're not to go home until you've found one. So I found my first meteorite in Arizona, and rather incredibly, I found it on the first day of the expedition. I go, well, that wasn't hard. Everyone says you'd never find a meteorite your whole life. So I was super pleased with myself, and then it took me two years to find my second one. So I, I, was, I was beyond lucky. But then I, I met a couple of other people who were doing the same thing, and we developed hunting and recovery techniques, which are now quite well-known because we made a television show about it. But in, in the early days, there was no real... There was no standard methodology. This was something that we had to discover. And since meteorites are rich in iron, we use metal detectors and magnets and a lot of other different types of tech. But there's science determination and luck in, involved in, in finding these, rarer than the rarest terrestrial gemstones. And of course, was uh, Jeff Notkin, uh, a man hanging out up in the Space Lounge at Space Rocks London. Mark, talking about how the Geological Museum in London sparked a lifelong fascination with NEOs, with meteorites, and indeed outer space. I suppose in some way, in some small, tiny, infinitesimal way, I think we're hoping to inspire the same kind of curiosity with Space Rocks. You know, Jeff. Jeff's a really interesting guy, and uh, I first met him. Uh, actually, Space Rocks is the first time I met him in person, but I've been talking to him on and off for uh, more than ten years. In two thousand and nine, was we had the thing called the International Year of Astronomy, and I was a professor at university uh, in Exeter, uh, in the UK, and I wanted to make that connection myself. Um, help people, you know, get a, 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 a real emotional connection to the universe that's out there. So I got in touch with Jeff and, and bought a whole bunch of meteorites from him. Um, and uh, he, he gave me a very nice, a very, very good deal um, because he understood what I was going to do, which was to actually give them away to school kids. These weren't just to be shown to them, but actually to be given to them. And uh, it was a lovely thing to be able to give a very small piece of outer space and explain to people, you know, where it came from and see these kids sort of walk away with their eyes wide open and they're just looking at their parents sort of thinking, wow, I have a piece of space in my hand. And even that can even work on adults as well. So I had um, uh, a small chondrite, uh, a stony meteorite, which is four and a half billion years old, as old as, old as the solar system. And I put it in the hand of a friend of mine. He was about 60 at the time. And I have never seen a person have a more emotional reaction when they just because he understood what it was. He contemplated the moment, uh, what that small stone in his hand represented for, for being human and uh, in a universe, which is, as you say, you know, it's huge, it's infinite. And how can you get to grips with it? But through that meteorite, I saw a person change their whole attitude towards the universe in, in one second. I mean, that sounds crazily profound, but his wife called me up a week later and said, you know, I don't know what you've done to him. You know, just putting that rock in his hand has changed him. Um, I think that's, again, that's exactly what space rocks can be, uh, I hope, is something that brings people together. Just one fact, one moment, one handshake, one meteorite in the hand um, can change people's lives. And uh, I, I, I think, you know, the world looks a bit dark in various ways at the moment, and uh, but if we can be a spark um, to uh, bring a bit of light into people's lives, yeah, job done.
job done, Mark. Well, an absolute pleasure to chat with you, of course. And, uh, well, uh, we can look forward to another episode of the Space Rocks podcast where we'll be talking to other panelists and attendees on the day. Uh, I want to invite everybody who may be listening to uh, post us questions from the community as well, of course, because this isn't just us talking about what we do. We want to hear it from you, what you want to hear. So just email podcast at spacerocksofficial.com. Mark, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Alex. Alex.